in, of everything that I'm about to say, the most important thing is this scripture passage I'm going to read. This is the most important thing we're going to do in this service as a church, is to sit under the authority of God's word. It's the only inerrant thing. And uh, then, of course, the sermon will give explanation to it. But, but let's do our best, uh, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to pay attention to God's word as he speaks to us. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He, dwelt, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. 
And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? You stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnate and by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets and the apostles to write your sacred, authoritative, inerrant, and holy word. Amen. There are some things in life that are consistent, aren't there? I mean, how does the old adage go? death and taxes. I think you could probably add a third one to that list, and that would be war in the Middle East. There's always war in the Middle East. Everyone right now is talking about the war in Israel, and there is no shortage of opinions, questions, and bad theology as a result Pastor Kevin and I have a mutual friend who he, he may or may not describe himself as religious or spiritual. I don't know. But he's nowhere near Orthodox, Reformed Protestantism. Uh, but he knows that we're pastors. And um, 
he's even come to church before here. And so the other day he asked us, he said, so this war in Israel, um, don't you guys believe that this has something to do with like the end of the world or the rapture or something? And this gave us an opportunity to explain to him that we do not believe the caricature that whatever's going on in his head that, that he thinks that we believe, we do not believe that. But we were, we were able to share with him some of what we do believe about the second advent of Christ. Now, even though as, you know, a reformed amillennialist, I do not um, view uh, the Bible and the end of the world with, with some of the caricatures that he was thinking of. Of course, there are many Christians uh, who do have theology uh, that have bled into popular culture like Left Behind and other, uh, other forms of media. Uh, ever since the rise of dispensationalism in the 1850s and then the re-nationalization of Israel in the 1940s, there has been uh, no shortage of speculation. Usually, this speculation comes from uh, non-reformed, low-church evangelicals. But there, is, there has been no shortage of speculation. Anytime anything happens with Israel, with this geopolitical entity called Israel now, there is uh, all sorts of speculation about a secret rapture that's going to lead to the end of human history. And there are faithful, believing brothers who hold to this kind of theology. I believe them to be wrong. Uh, because poor hermeneutics, and when I say the word hermeneutics, I mean how we interpret the Bible, how we read and understand the Bible. That's what hermeneutics means. Poor hermeneutics gives birth to poor theology, which then grows into wild speculation and an unnecessary anxiety about the eminence of the end of the world. And Maybe you have felt that, maybe you know other Christians who experience that, uh, but it's actually a poor understanding of the Bible and interpreting the Bible that leads to this kind of anxiety in life. So the question is, if, if dispensationalism, is this whole, if this whole kind of structure that so many uh, Christians, American Christians, just kind of receive. I would say a lot of American Christians probably can't explain dispensational theology very well, but they know about left behind or the rapture or the Antichrist or whatever. Um, if, if, if I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching, um, then what does Scripture teach about the end of human history, and does it have anything to do with the geopolitical nation of Israel and that small strip of land over there in the Middle East. Now, Acts chapter 7 is not the only pericope in the Bible that addresses the end of human history and Israel and all of these sorts of things, uh, but Acts 7 does address those questions. You noticed while we were, we were reading through the text, again, the text is long, uh, Stephen here preaching his final sermon is preaching a biblical theology in response to these charges that the Jews are bringing to him. 
Um, and, and, and this text, like every passage of the Bible, can be exposited in so many different ways. What we're going to do this morning, because there is so much here and you know, we can only attack it one way, is we're going to draw eight truths from this long text. Uh, some of these truths will speak to the main point of the text. Others will be truths that can be drawn from the text. Others will be applications that stem from the text. But we're, we've got eight points or eight truths from Acts chapter 7 this morning. And here's the first one. The first truth, the first point that we see in Acts chapter 7 is that all of Scripture is about Christ. All of the Bible is about Jesus. Now, this certainly isn't the main point of Acts chapter 7. It is a truth that is drawn from Acts chapter 7, but it's not, it's not Stephen's main point. It's not Luke's main point as, he's, as he wrote it, but because the Holy Spirit is sovereign over all of the Bible uh, and all of the Bible agrees with the rest of the Bible, we see this truth here in Acts chapter 7. All of Scripture is about Christ. As Stephen answers the charges of the Jews against him, he does so by preaching a pretty thorough biblical theology through all of the Old Testament. Beginning with Father Abraham in the book of Genesis, he works through Isaac and Jacob and the twelve patriarchs and Moses, the Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the golden calf idolatry, uh, the tabernacle, Joshua's conquest of Canaan, King David's intention to build the temple, King Solomon's actual building of the temple, and the predictions and the persecutions of the prophets. So there's more in the Old Testament than this, but I mean, this is a pretty good summary of the Old Testament, Acts chapter 7. And this biblical theology of the Old Testament is leading us to what? What's the point? Maybe a better question is, is leading us to whom? And verse 52 tells us that the Old Testament announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Stephen is saying that's the point. The point of all of this history, the point of all of these stories, the point of all of the prose and the poems and the prophecy, the point of Genesis through uh, the, the 12 minor prophets is to announce beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Stephen, Stephen is showing us through his hermeneutics, through how he's interpreting the Old Testament, through his biblical theology, through his Christ-centered sermon, that all of Scripture is about Christ. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Stephen preached the gospel of Jesus. This is a non-negotiable hermeneutical principle that not only shapes how you read and interpret the Bible, but also shapes how you live your life. The Old Testament is all about the good news of Jesus. The Old Testament is not about God's promises to Israel that remain unfulfilled until a future point in history. 
The Old Testament is not merely a collection of children's Sunday school stories. The Old Testament is not an archaic book about an unloving God that we must unhitch ourselves from. No, the Old Testament is announcing beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And I will say this because this whole sermon's not going to be an apologetic against just just an apologetic against dispensationalism. We're preaching the text because it's not just dispensationalists, I think, that misunderstand the text. Of course, uh, all sorts of Christians, liberal Christians, um, is Jews themselves misunderstand the Old Testament. There's a lot of people that get it wrong. But I will say, when you get this wrong, it's going to lead to that poor theology. Those who believe that the Old Testament is primary, primarily about God's promises to Israel that are unfulfilled and not primarily about Jesus, those are the people who are getting worked up every time something happens over in the Middle East, thinking it's about the end of the world. It's not. They're misunderstanding the story, misunderstanding the point, misunderstanding what God is doing through the Old Testament and the history of Israel and how he explains what he's doing in the New Testament and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. All of Scripture is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Jesus is the main character. Israel's not the main character. Adam's not the main character. Moses is not the main character. Jesus is the main character. He is the point. All of Scripture is about Christ. Secondly, not only is all of Scripture about Christ, but all of human history is about Christ. That's our second truth. All of human history is about Jesus. Again, not the main point of the text, but a truth that we can glean. It is fascinating that Stephen begins his biblical theology here in Acts 7 with Abraham. We first read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and, and the, this is the reason why it's so fascinating. Because if you, if you were to look at any world history book, if you were to talk to any historian, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, in any case, all of the, the dating of human history, like dates, what, what do we know for sure when certain things happened, all right? The point where everybody can agree on that we go back, the, the furthest back we can trace is to around the time of Father Abraham. We don't know exact dates of anything that happened before that time. People guess, you know, people have theories, uh, but the, the oldest point in documented human history where we have legitimate dating dates back to around the time of Abraham. So, uh, most of you know, we took our kids to Disney for Halloween, and one of our favorite rides at um, Epcot Center is called Spaceship Earth. If you've ever been to Disney World or if you've seen you know, pictures or videos or anything, Spaceship Earth is the big like golf ball-looking uh, uh, structure, I guess, at Epcot. And the attraction is a dark ride, like you get in a little you know, vehicle that's moving slow, and it's dark and it's air-conditioned, which, you know, for Orlando in July is much appreciated uh, for, by many people. Uh, so it's a dark ride, and what it, what, it, what it does is it basically traces 
the history and development of technology and communication. Um, you know, from, from like the development of the alphabet, uh, thank the Phoenicians for that because the Phoenicians invented the alphabet, to, um, you know, Greek logic and Roman road structures and uh, the development of the computer. It's, a, it's technology and development throughout human history. So the first scene on the ride when you're coming up is like a bunch of cavemen trying to communicate to each other about how to kill a mastodon. And they're like, you know, we don't know when this was, but humans used to be Neanderthals and we had to figure out how to hunt mastodons together. Um, and then basically the next scene, so the first real scene where they know dates and what was going on, is around the time of Abraham. Because that's, that's the oldest documented history in terms of dates that we're sure of that we have. That's not a coincidence. Everything before Abraham's time is really guesswork in terms of dating. There are scientists and historians uh, who pontificate about the origins of human history and you know hundreds of millions of years of life before human life. Of course, that's not biblical, that's grounded in naturalism. We know that God created all things and created Adam in his image. Some Christians try to figure out dates based on genealogies in Genesis 1 through 11. So they try to say the earth is this many years old because even though we don't know exact dating before Abraham, we can use these genealogies to try and figure out the dates. Uh, the problem with that is that um, genealogies in scripture are different. I mean, you can read genealogies of certain people and the genealogies will be different. And these ancient Near Eastern genealogies were not intended to be used for accurate dating purposes. That's not the point of genealogies. Um, so there's other Christians who might argue for longer spans of time. Whatever. None of that really matters, right? Because we really don't know. Either way, Genesis 1 through 11, if you read a commentary about the book of Genesis, is often called proto-history, meaning the events of Genesis 1 through 11 all happen before we know the actual accurate dates of when they happened. But beginning with Abraham, we can accurately date every single thing that happens in the Bible. So it is fascinating, again, this isn't the main point of X7, but it is a truth we can draw, that Stephen begins his biblical theology with Abraham. Now, undoubtedly, Stephen begins with Abraham because Abraham is the grandfather of Jacob, who Yahweh renamed Israel, and Stephen is arguing from Jewish history to Jewish people. But... Stephen's structure also rightly reveals that all of human history is about Jesus Christ. That is the point of world history. The history of the world is intentional. Why did God create the world and sovereignly administer history the way he has so far? For the glory of Jesus. That's why he did it. That's the reason all things exist. We know that all of human history is about Christ because even beginning in Genesis 1 through 11, beginning in Genesis 3.15, beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created humanity, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. And that since Adam, 
since Adam, the very first man, there has always been um, humans, there have always been people who worship God by trusting his promise. There's never been a point in time in the history of the world where there were not human beings who worshiped God by trusting his promise. It's true. God has never allowed there to be a point in history where there weren't image bearers trusting his promise. All of human history is about Jesus. So beginning with the oldest universally agreed upon documented human history at the time of Father Abraham, there was a covenant made, Stephen tells us, between Yahweh and Abraham. The covenant of circumcision, the covenant of promise from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. That Abraham's seed, in Abraham's seed, in his son, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And Galatians 3.16 tells us that Jesus is that seed. Jesus is that promised one. Why? That's because all of human history is about Jesus. From Genesis 3.15 through the entire Old Testament until the advent of Christ in the Gospels, revealing his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And now as we move forward through the book of Acts, throughout church history, until the second advent of Christ when Jesus will return to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. All of human history is about Jesus. Jesus is the point of history. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the telos. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created for Jesus. All of human history is about Christ. It is his story. The third truth that we can draw from Acts chapter 7 is that the law was fulfilled in Christ. God's law is fulfilled in Christ. This is one of the main points of the pericope. You see, Stephen's speech and Stephen's martyrdom are both a result of the Jews, in part, charging Stephen. Remember, Pastor Kevin preached this last week, Acts chapter 6, verse 15. Stephen was preaching that Jesus of Nazareth will change the customs that Moses delivered to Israel. So there's two reasons here that they're giving for killing Stephen. The first one is that Stephen is preaching that the customs, the, that Jesus will change the customs delivered uh, by Moses to Israel, that Jesus has come and something is different with the law. Of course, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's what is referred to as the law. Stephen's final sermon here is a biblical theology explaining why Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The law of God was not merely for Israel for a period of time that is now dissolved. That is an improper understanding of the law. God's law was written on Adam's heart even before the fall. God's law was written on the hearts of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 patriarchs and Moses and all of God's people even before Yahweh gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And God's law is fulfilled in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The law is not abolished in Jesus, but is fulfilled Listen to what Jesus himself said in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, pause for a minute, that means never, because heaven and earth are never passing away, because Jesus is returning and making all things new. Okay, again, poor theology stemming from poor hermeneutics. Okay, until heaven and earth pass away, never, not an iota nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. What does that mean? The law is never passing away either. Therefore, so as a result of the fact that, that Jesus fulfilled the law and it's never going away, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, them the law, and teaches the law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So Jesus says that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and that the law will never pass away, and that whoever does and teaches the law will be called great in God's kingdom. This is in the New Testament that Jesus said that. So while there are elements of the law that have been completed because of the Christ event, Reformed uh, Christians have called those the civil and the ceremonial elements of the law, that their purpose has been served and fulfilled, the Ten Commandments are still in effect, still required by God. The only difference now between us as New Covenant Christians and Israel under the Old Covenant is that we do not obey the Ten Commandments legalistically earning God's favor, but we obey the Ten Commandments out of love and obedience to Jesus who perfectly kept the Ten Commandments and all of God's law for us. The law is fulfilled in Christ. Not only is the law fulfilled in Christ, but number four, the temple is fulfilled in Christ. This was the other charge that Stephen was answering. The Jews charged Stephen that he was, he was you know, uh, saying that the law doesn't, that Jesus is changing the law. And the second thing uh, in Acts 6.14 is that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. This place meaning the temple. That's where they're standing. They're at the temple. So the Jews were so offended by this teaching because under the Old Covenant, the temple is the place where Yahweh dwelt with his people. But Stephen then preaches this biblical theology, and what does he do? He traces the presence and the promises of God all the way through the Old Testament. Stephen says God was with his people even before the tabernacle, even before the temple. And when King David wanted to build the temple— the first temple, Yahweh told Israel that he did not need a house because he created the heavens and the earth. Pastor Bobby read from Isaiah chapter 66 in our call to worship where God reiterates that reality. Here in our text, it's verses 49 and 50. The temple was required under the old covenant. But now there is no longer any need for a temple because Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus again told us so himself. John 2, 19 through 22, Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. That's the second temple where, where they are. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture 
and the word that Jesus had spoken. In Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, um, again, Pastor Kevin alluded to this last week, before Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, he's about to describe all of the events that are going to happen at A.D. 70 when God, in history, judged the temple. Jesus, from the throne of God, judged the temple. That happened. That happened in time and space. And they have not had a temple since. That's not a coincidence. God judged the temple. The temple's done. There is no more temple. Jesus is the temple. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 24, 1 through 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him that the building, to point out the buildings of the temple. And Jesus answered, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That happened in AD 70. There's not been a temple ever since. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that when Jesus died, the, tur- the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? God tore the curtain because the temple was rendered obsolete. Why? Because the temple was merely a signpost pointing us forward to God incarnate. That was the point of the temple. The temple did not have value in and of itself. The temple's a sign. It's pointing you somewhere or to someone else, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the true and final temple because Jesus is the only place where God dwells with man. As we move into the Advent season, we will be singing and speaking and praying and reading about Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So Stephen says Jesus fulfilled the temple. We needed Jesus to come to us. We needed Emmanuel because as we confessed earlier in the Nicene Creed, it was for us men and for our salvation that Jesus came. And as we saw once again in the Confession and Pardon, we need salvation because of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So the fifth truth that we can draw from Acts chapter 7 is that Christ saves the worst of sinners. Christ saves the worst of sinners. Did you notice, as we read through the text, that there are really only two characters in the immediate scene, not throughout the biblical theology, but the scene of Stephen where he's at, there's really only two characters that are given that we know their name. Stephen, and then in verse 58, the text says, a young man named Saul. Saul, who would also be known as Paul, the same Paul who would preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, the same Paul who wrote half of the New Testament, the same Paul who planted churches all over the Mediterranean, the same Paul who himself would one day be martyred in Jesus' name, this Saul, this Paul, was a member of the Jewish mob that murdered Stephen. Whoa, like plot twist, right? I mean, that's that's amazing. And Saul was not a good dude at this point in his life. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to hear Paul's testimony several times. Acts 8.1 says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. 
Acts 8.3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and dragging men and women to prison. Acts 9.1 says that Saul was breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul would write of himself, he would say the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. Paul saw himself as the worst of sinners because Paul understood the holiness of God. And Paul understood the depravity of his own heart. He understood that he sinned in thought, word, and deed by what he did and by what he had left undone. Paul understood that he had not loved God with his whole heart and that he did not love his neighbor as himself. And the brilliance of the book of Acts is that this young Pharisee who is standing and approving of the church's first martyrdom will become the apostle who brings the gospel to Rome where he will face his own martyrdom. And you know what, guys? That's really good news. That's really good news for people like you and me because we too are the worst of sinners. We are. We have to have that understanding. We have to rightly understand God's holiness and our own depravity. You must understand that because if you really don't understand that, then you really don't understand the gospel. If you think, I mean, yeah, I mess up, I sin, but I'm, I'm really not that bad. You know, like, I mean, there's people way worse than me. My good, you know, I think my good will probably outweigh my bad when it's all said and done. If that's your mentality, then you don't understand the gospel. You're not a Christian. Because Christians understand the holiness of God. And our depravity, our inability to be saved, to be righteous, to be worthy on our own. Romans 3.10 says none are righteous. That means everybody. That means you. You are not righteous. I am not righteous. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We inherit this sin nature from our father, Adam, and as a result of that, we break God's law constantly. We are totally depraved. We are totally enabled to please God, to do right, to be righteous. There's not one of the Ten Commandments. There is not one of the Ten Commandments that you have kept in thought, word, and deed. Not one. We are rebellious, 
lawbreakers, and we deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. And if you don't think so, then you don't understand the gospel. It is not good news if you don't understand the bad news. But the good news, church, is that Christ came to save the worst of sinners. That's the good news. Because Jesus can and does save the worst of sinners. That's the reason why Jesus came to live and to die and to resurrect, because it is only through Jesus that we can be made right with God. That's the sixth truth that we see from Acts 7. We are only made right with God through Christ. In verse 52, Stephen declares that the law and the prophets, again by that he means the Old Testament, that the Old Testament announced the coming of the righteous one. The righteous one. That's what he calls Jesus. Other places in the book of Acts, Jesus is called the righteous one. The Greek word for righteous is dikaios. It means pertaining to being in accordance with what God requires. Pertaining to being in accordance with what God requires, righteous or just. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is in accordance with what God requires. You are not. I am not. No other human being in the history of the world other than Jesus of Nazareth has been in accordance with what God requires. And that's why Acts 7 says that Jesus is the righteous one. And as the righteous one, Jesus fulfills both the law and the temple. See, this is Stephen's point. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the temple. Because humans are only righteous if they keep God's law perfectly. Because we don't do that, because we break God's law, we needed the temple, the sacrificial system, to cover our sins. But Jesus did keep God's law perfectly. He's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus never sinned. Jesus is also the fulfillment of the temple. He is the sacrifice by which our sins are forgiven. Because God is holy and because we are sinners, we need the righteous life and the substitutionary death of Jesus and his resurrection to reconcile us with God. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and Jesus rose again on the third day so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And what you must do is take this knowledge of this good news and assent that it is true, and then you must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. And if you do that, God will save you. That's what Isaac and Bobby and Sherry did. That's what they just confessed to you in their baptism. Repent and believe the gospel. The best and most important thing that you can ever do is to be made right with God. The most important thing that you can ever do is be made right with God. Have you done that? There's nothing else that matters when it's all said and done. You know, it sounds silly because like a lot of things matter. Are you going to spend eternity in hell or are you going to spend eternity with Christ? That's how much this matters. There's nothing more important. That's why a day like today where we, where we observe these baptisms is so monumental. It's so important, but, but the text also tells us that just because you're a Christian and the most important thing is settled, and it is, that doesn't mean that life will get easier. 
In fact, in many ways, it may get more difficult. Why? Because as a Christian, you now find yourself at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You used to be on their team, right? And now God has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and the kingdom of darkness doesn't like that. So you are now at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and oftentimes that will cause you to suffer. The seventh truth that we draw from Acts 7 is that Christ identifies with us when we suffer for him. Verse 55 tells us that when Stephen finished preaching and right before the Jews stoned him to death, that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus stands with Stephen as Stephen dies for Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus knows what it's like to be persecuted. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned by your loved ones. Jesus knows what it's like to be falsely accused and hated and betrayed and made fun of. And Jesus knows what it's like to be martyred. And so if or when we ever face those painful or seemingly impossible situations, church, the Bible tells us that Jesus stands with us. Jesus identifies with us when we suffer for him because that is the pattern of Christ, death and resurrection. Not only does the text tell us how Jesus reacts to our mistreatment, but it tells us how we should react to our mistreatment. And this is the eighth and final truth we're going to see from Acts 7 this morning. Because we have been forgiven all in Christ, we can forgive all. Because we have been forgiven all in Christ, we can forgive all. You remember last week, Pastor Kevin mentioned uh, how verse 60 tells us that Stephen recapitulates uh, what Jesus does on the cross as he's dying for us. As Jesus is, says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Verse 60 says, for, of Stephen falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So not only did Jesus say almost the same exact thing on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Jesus taught us to pray, he told us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Christians are people who are who forgive because we are forgiven. Now, this is not always easy. C.S. Lewis said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. But the gospel reminds us that we are the worst of sinners and that we have been forgiven of our sin. And so we walk in the footsteps of Jesus who forgives us when we repent. We have been forgiven, and so shame on us if we will not forgive. Now, this is, of course, nuanced because we live in a fallen and broken world. 
right? So don't get this wrong. This doesn't, forgiveness does not mean in any given situation that we act as if no wrong has happened. That is not forgiveness. And some of you have been hurt by another person in such a way that the relationship can never be the same. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we sweep evil under the rug or that we're best friends with somebody who has hurt us in a devastating manner. But what forgiveness does mean is that we take that pain, that we take that bitterness and that hurt and that longing for justice and we give it to God. We trust him with that. We trust God with the end result. We rest in the promise that justice will finally and fully be administered either in hell or on the cross of Christ. And that when Jesus returns, he will make everything sad untrue. Death, taxes, war in the Middle East, all of these things that seem to be consistent, three things you can always count on, and yet, church, there is a fourth, too. Because of the good news of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the goal of human history and the goal of Scripture, you can count on the promise that when Jesus returns, he will raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. Living in light of the return of Christ, then, has nothing to do with end times charts or watching Fox News and trying to figure out how the war in Israel is related to the Antichrist or the rapture or any of that. No. Living in light of the return of Christ means repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. It means forgiving others. It means trusting Jesus even when you suffer for him. It means obeying God's law, not out of legalistic guilt or self-righteous attempt at earning God's favor, but out of love for the God who created you and who kept the law on your behalf. Living in light of the return of Christ means being faithful to your marriage. It means raising your kids to follow Jesus. Most importantly, by bringing them to church. Living in light of the return of Christ means not loving your money more than you love Jesus. Because brothers and sisters, we are all going to die. We're all going to die. And we're all going to stand before Christ in judgment. Live accordingly. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void, that you would sanctify us in the truth of your word. Father, that it would be profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. We pray for any and every person in the room who is not trusting in Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and work regeneration in their hearts, that they would repent and believe the gospel. We pray for your people, that you would train our hearts and our minds to love you and to love your word and to love our neighbor and to love the church. 
Father, we pray as we come to the Eucharist that it would be with hearts of joy, rejoicing in what your Son Jesus did on our behalf, and that we would do so with hearts that pray as your Son taught us to pray. When he said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we pray all of these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, who lived and died and was buried and rose again for us and for our salvation. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from the Father and the Son to point us back to Jesus. Amen. If you 